Hey, if you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and turn me to John chapter 13, um, and as well as 1 John chapter 4. John chapter 13, as well as 1 John chapter 4. We're continuing in our Encounter Jesus series where we're looking through the Gospel of John. And I think today's a good example that to remind us that this is not a series where we're necessarily going verse by verse and unpacking and doing an exhaustive study of the Gospel of John. Um, we're not doing that. In fact, we're being... Uh, a little more broad, and we're looking at it through a thematic way. Yes, we're still going sequentially through the Gospel of John, but we're looking at specifically in the first half, what were the different encounters that people had with Jesus, what were the lessons to be learned, and how does that apply to our lives? And then this is a good example because we're going to look at John 13, 14, and 15 all today. Now, we're not going to read all of this. In fact, we're going to read parts of it. Um, and to give justification for, hey, how can you take really at the end of 13, all of 14, the beginning of 15, and put it into one smaller teaching and lesson? My justification for you is First John chapter 4, 7 through 21, because that's exactly what John does. He summarizes John 13, 14, and 15 in this one text in First John. So I'm actually I'm going to do my best to teach that text and show you how it is a summary of John 13, 14, and 15, and then allow the challenge of John 13, 14, and 15, and the challenge that John gives in 1 John to be the challenge of today's text. So let's start actually with 1 John 4, 17 through 21. It will be on the screen, but when we come back to John chapter 13, 14, and 15, it will not be on the screen. And so let me encourage you to grab a Bible and the seat back in front of you and follow along with me. So 1 John chapter 4, 7 through 21. If you're there, would you simply say amen? All right, let me know you're there. All right, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this... The love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this love, not that we have loved God, but have loved, uh, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or payment for our sins. Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in us, or whoever abides in love abides in God, and whoever abides in God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have the confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with the punishment, and whoever 
fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, but hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. I want to draw your attention now as we look at John 13, 14, and 15 for you to even maybe keep a finger in 1 John and begin to see the connections in the same language, not just because it was written by the same author, but because he's specifically summarizing and saying the same thing. But in John chapter 13, verse 31, give you a minute to flip there, John 13, 31. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me, just as I said to the Jews. So now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. And then he says this in verse 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you You also are to love one another. If you have a sermon handout, the target statement, you probably could have guessed by now, is simply love one another. I remember the first time I was reading the Gospel of John, studying the Gospel of John. I was reading a book uh, by a scholar that I respect and trust. Uh, His name's Andreas Kostenberger. He actually teaches at Midwestern, uh, where Zamir goes, and I remember reading his book, and I came, it's a very large book where he just writes a, a, a basically a commentary, literature overview of the Gospel of John. And he comes and brings this to my attention, something I had not noticed and not realized, and honestly don't know that I ever would have realized, but he brings a thought to my attention. He says this, John 13, 34, is the only time in the entire Gospel of John that God or Jesus gives us an ethical command to obey. Now, let me define what I mean by ethical command. Command is what? Telling somebody to do something. There are a lot of passages of scriptures in the Gospel of John where Jesus tells us to do something. We're about to see, when we turn to John chapter 4, he gives us a lot of commands around the idea of believe. Believe in me. But an ethical command, think about ethics, it's how we relate to one another, to others around us, and how We treat one another, care for one another, and how we operate within a world, what is faithful and true and what is right and how we treat others. And he points out that the Gospel of John, John gives us one ethical command. Now, you might go, well, that may or may not be a surprise, but let me just kind of give a contrast. When we turn to Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, in three chapters there alone, we have almost 50 ethical commands of how we are to care for one another, do for one another, treat one another. How we are to honor Christ with our words and our actions. And Paul in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 just gives us a litany of ethical commands to obey. I don't think it's a coincidence that John, in 21 chapters, as poetically and intentionally as he writes, I believe more than any of the other gospel writers, that he only gives us one ethical command, as if to say, This is the singular, most important thing you should know in how you are to live as Christians in the world around you. Now, he gives us a lot about how we are to relate to Christ, namely believe in him. That's one of his motivations. But then to say, as you relate to others, there's really one thing I want you to get, and it's to love one another. 
There is um, tradition and belief in church history, because John, we understand, lived uh, late into life. So John was going around preaching when all the other apostles and disciples had already died. So imagine you're in church in Ephesus, and you find out that John's going to come be your pastor for a while, which happened, and he's going to come and preach, and that John's going around and teaching. It's like, man, like the gospel, the writer, the apostle John's going to come and be our preacher. History goes like this. Uh, Church fathers would write about the tradition that John would come and preach, and John would preach really short sermons. Now, I want you to think about that for a second. The one who wrote the Gospel of John, he is known for preaching really short sermons at the end of his life. And tradition goes that he would go around and he would stand up and he would say, Church, the challenge I give to you is that you love one another. And if you love one another, then everything else will work out, essentially. And then he would sit down. That's it. Some of you are thinking, how long is it going to take for our pastor to realize the Apostle John had something going on there, right? But here's the idea I want us to get, that John lived a life, and as it relates to ethics, and as it relates to how we care for one another, that he gives us the Gospel of John, and he tells us one thing to do as it relates to one another, and it's simply this, love one another, Now, we understand that the gospel writer John is giving us this intentionally, but he's not the one who said it. Jesus is the one who said it. Now, Jesus gave us plenty of other ethical commands, but John says this is the most important. And we could see this. If you go and read the passage again in 1 John or all of 1 John, you can see that this was a theme that John had that he wanted to emphasize. And his life as a believer and as an apostle, as one who walked with Christ and wrote Scripture, he wanted to make sure that we walked away with the challenge to love one another. Now, it begs the question, what does it mean to love one another? There's a lot of passages that could kind of give that answer. But really the best is, he says, simply this. In the same way that Christ has loved you, you are to love one another. Now, let's begin to think about that for a second. How has Christ loved us? That he ultimately, he loved us in such a way that he laid down his life for us. There are two ways that I want to kind of defend from the John, as he writes John 13, 14, and 15, to defend this command. Because although it is the only ethical command given to us in John, this is not the only time that John says it. As we read John 13 on, you're going to see it three or four more times where John just repeats this phrase from Jesus that we are to love one another. But Jesus says that we are to love one another in the context of Jesus about to say, I'm leaving you. Like, I'm about to leave And as I leave, I have something really important to tell you. You are to love one another. Now they begin to ask questions like, hey, where are you going? Can we follow you? Like, are you going on a trip and are you coming back? Like, why can't we go with you? We've been following you for years. You're saying to the Pharisees and now you're saying to us that you're going somewhere and we can't go with you and they're all worried about this. And then uh, Peter's like, we're going to go with you even to the point of death. And Jesus is like, no, you're not. You're going to deny me three times. And so it's in this context of Jesus saying, I'm leaving. And Peter's like, no, you're not leaving. Or if you are leaving, I'm dying with you. I'm going with you. All the disciples are like, no, Jesus, you can't, you can't leave us. It's in that context that he gives this important command that you are to love one another. But then he gets to chapter 14. And he says in verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled. What's he, what are they worried about? They're worried about the fact that Jesus is with them and Jesus is about to leave them. Then what are they going to do? In Acts chapter 1, not to go and read all of it in detail right now, but we understand in Acts 1, we see Jesus ascend to heaven. 
And it literally says the disciples watched him float into the sky and disappear, and they stood there looking. They just kept looking. Like, what are we to do now? To the point that an angel had to come down and say, why do you keep looking into heaven? Imagine you're the disciples, Jesus is with you, and Jesus is saying, I'm going to leave you. You're panicking. They're still not sure what to do. And even in Acts 1, it says when Jesus does actually leave them, they just sit here and go, like, what do we do now? Like, he says he's coming back quickly. Do you think it'll be tonight? We're just going to... And they understood that there was a, rightfully so, if I'm them, I'm, I've got fear. And Jesus says, you have no reason to allow your hearts to be troubled. Why? And he gives a command, not an ethical command, because it doesn't relate to other people. It just relates to God. And he says, believe in God. Truth number one to defend the idea of love one another is simply this, believe in Jesus. He goes on to say, believe also in me. Believe in God and believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. So begin to think about this command that we are to love one another. They are then fearful of the reality that Jesus is leaving. They're not paying attention to the love part yet. They're just paying attention that Jesus is talking about leaving. And then they go, what do we do now? And Jesus makes it clear, believe in me. How do we love one another faithfully? We, be, we believe first in Jesus. The idea of loving one another, there's a love that is referenced here that is greater than that this world knows. Luke chapter 6, to be specific, would say, hey, if you love someone who loves you, that's not real love. Because even sinners know how to do that. If you're nice to someone who's nice to you, that's not real love, because sinners know how to do that. And if you give to someone who gives to you, that's not really nice and gracious and loving, because even sinners know to do that. But the love I'm referring to is a love that loves even to your enemies, and so when Jesus says in this moment, you are to love others in the same way that I've loved you, it's not just, hey, I'm going to be nice to the people that are nice to me, but it's a call and a challenge to love and to care for our enemies and to those who have wronged us and sinned against us, as well as to people who have been nice to us. But it's a call and a challenge to love those who have not loved us, which is precisely the way Jesus has loved us. We didn't first love him. It's what the argument John is giving in 1 John, you didn't first love him. His love for you is not because you loved him. But he loved you even when you didn't love him. And therefore, your love for him is a response to his love. But nonetheless, you love in the same way that Christ has loved you. And you do that first and foremost by believing in Jesus. This is the reason why he would say in 1 John 4, 7, love one another. And then he would say, if anyone does not love God, he does not know God. Meaning for us to love the way Christ has loved us, it begins first with our understanding, following, and believing in Jesus in salvation and faith. This is so simple. And I think hopefully by now, as we've walked through the Gospel of John, you go, as complex and beautifully written as John is, it's also very simple. Even by the fact that this is the only ethical command in all the Gospel of John, John's going, I don't want you to be confused about what's really most important around here. And that is to love one another. This is not complicated. This is not difficult to understand, but it's at times very impossible to live if we don't properly understand and live it out the way Jesus says, which first when we think about loving others, 
It's not, first of all, it's not an option. It's not a good suggestion. It's actually evidence of that, the fact that we, whether or not we really know and believe in Jesus. If anyone does not love me, going back to 1 John, if anyone does not love, uh, does not know God, because God is love. If you and I are going to love one another, and if we're going to live out the challenge that John gives us, that he went on to preach if the rest of his life and late at life as a pastor, he's like, I've already written and said a lot of things, but so I'll, let me just tell you the most important thing that I want to make sure you get. Love one another, love one another, love one another, love one another. And oh yeah, you can't do that if you don't know Jesus. Why? Because it's a love that it transcends this world. The love you and I are talking about in this text, or the love that John is talking about in this text, the love that Jesus is talking about is not a love that you and I can produce. It's not a love that comes just because we're having a really good day or really excited about something or got a promotion at work and so we're just in a good mood and so we're nice to people. No, it's a love that says when everything else is going awful and wrong and when you are around people who have hurt you and have not in any way been nice to you, you're still able because of the love of Jesus has so captured you that you're able to display Jesus to them. Now this is different. This is difficult, but it's the challenge that John would give us. It's the only challenge that John gives us, ethically speaking, and how we are to relate to one another. And it starts with this idea of believing in Jesus. I don't want to make assumptions as if to say that everyone in here already gets truth number one, that we believe in Jesus. And so I want to encourage you that if you do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that the gospel writer and the gospels are making it clear that for God so loved you, you, that he came. John 1, 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. In order to display his love and to redeem you, that's what 1 John would say, that he came and he displayed his love for us. 1 John 4, 10, in this is love, that not that we love God, but that he loved and sent his son to be the payment for our sins. My first challenge to you tonight is that you would believe in Jesus. But as we continue, I want to summarize John chapter 4, or 14. We see that Jesus is talking about this idea that he's about to go somewhere. And they respond, Philip responds, hey, we'll, we'll believe if you just show us the Father. To which Jesus says, what are you talking about? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Believe in me. And then he goes on at the end of chapter 14 to say that, hey, when I leave you, though, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will send my spirit. I will send a helper to be with you. I want you to get what Jesus is saying here. This isn't the main point of the sermon, but I want to make sure that we at least cover this because this is such an encouragement. Jesus is in the room physically with his disciples, and he says this, hey, I'm about to leave you. Their response would have been my response. Uh-uh. Like, stay. No, what, do you, what do you mean you're going to leave us? No, stay right here. But then he makes this statement. But if I don't go, I can't send the helper. But once I go, I will send the Spirit. That's the helper referenced here. I will send the Holy Spirit. And it's better for the Spirit of God to be in you than for me to be beside you. I want you to catch that for a second. That Jesus is saying it is better for the Spirit of God to come and dwell in his people, in the church, in you, than it is for me to be standing next to you. I don't know about you. There's been so many times I just wish Jesus was right in front of me and I could have a conversation. But when Jesus talks about the coming of the Spirit, he talks about this helper that will be with us and will guide us. And we understand this to be true, because remember, in the context of the conversation, Peter's going, I'm with you and I'll die to the end, and he denies Jesus. But when does, Je when does Peter stop denying Jesus? 
when the Spirit of God indwells him in Acts chapter 2. As if to say, the Spirit of God, this, this, this almost sounds heretical, but it's not, I don't think. As if to say, it is better to have the Spirit of God in us, which we do as believers, than to have Jesus up here next to me. Now, I want to have Jesus next to me. And all of Scripture points to this moment where Jesus comes back. So let's not miss that in the text. The text is Jesus saying, I'm coming back. But it's not to say that what we have now is a less than God that dwells with us. No, we have God dwelling with us and in us in the Spirit. And therefore, that's why we're going to switch over. That's why Jesus would come into John chapter 15. When the Spirit of God comes in you, it is the same as what Romans 8 would say, that we are children of God and Jesus, the Spirit of God, dwells within us. It's the reason why John chapter 15 would go on to say this. I am the vine and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you, clean, uh, already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. So once you catch this, he's telling his disciples, you already are clean. I've already cleansed you. Remember, he said that in John 13 when he was washing Peter's feet. He said, you are already clean. And so we're, meaning we've already, this picture of belief has taken place. But then he gives the challenge, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Then the summary verse, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. How do we love one another? First, we believe in Jesus. Second, we abide in Jesus. Now, I want to unpack the idea in a second of what it means to abide in Jesus. But I want you to picture the imagery. That you have a vine and you have fruit on the vine. We are the branches. And it's really the question, what does a branch do to bear fruit? According to this text, we do nothing other than abide and connect to the vine. That then the Spirit of God in us produces the love of God and the fruits of the Spirit through us. And what is the fruit in reference? It's, remember, same conversation as John 13. So I know it's two chapters later, but it's the same conversation. He's saying, love one another. I'm about to leave. Love one another in the same way I've loved you once I'm gone. They're going, what are you talking about? You can't leave. And he goes, yes, I have to leave. Believe in me. Here, here's the Spirit. But let's get back to this idea. The Spirit's in you, and then you abide in me, and then I will produce this love through you. So when it comes to the conversation about the command within John, what does it mean to love one another? The command is a love that cannot happen if we don't first believe in Jesus and know him and walk with him. And it's a love that cannot happen if we are not ongoing, abiding in Jesus as believers and allowing the Spirit of God to birth that love through us. Verse 5 says at the end, apart from me, you can do nothing. I want us to think about that for a second. I want to challenge that statement to better help us better understand what the statement's saying. Literally, it says, for apart from me, you can do nothing. But I can do a lot of things apart from Christ. I can sin apart from Christ. I, I can make a mess of my life apart from Christ. We begin to think about things. I can do a lot of things apart from Christ. But what he's trying to say is, as it relates to the Spirit of God, as it relates to the kingdom of God, as it relates to the love I'm talking about, and we even think about fruits of the Spirit, so we go to Galatians. 
Love, joy, peace, patience. We list those out and we think about all the attributes of God and the attributes we want to see produced through our lives. He's saying, hey, you Christian, you disciple cannot do this unless the Spirit of God is in you and the Spirit of God is living through your life. So church family, it's one thing for us to understand what the Bible means by love one another. It's a whole other thing for us actually to live that out. And so John would take up these words again, and he would say this in John, 1 John 4, 13. By this we know that we abide in him. See how he's using the same language? By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. So what does it mean to abide in Christ? It means to recognize that if we believe in Jesus, and Romans 8 says that if we believe in him, we have the spirit of God dwelling within us. And if we have the spirit of God dwelling within us and we walk with him and we surrender to him, then the fruits of the spirit on an ongoing daily basis live through our lives. Now, I want us to understand how the scripture uses the same language to talk about different things so we don't get confused. Romans 8, I've already given reference to it. 1 John, John 14 here, is that when we give our life to Jesus, the Spirit of God lives within us. So to say to allow the Spirit to live in you and flow through you, one might think, well, this just means it's a guaranteed happen. I know Jesus, therefore it's going to happen. But I want to be clear, there are plenty of moments in Scripture where it also says, walk in the Spirit, Ephesians 4. That Galatians chapter 5, walk in the Spirit, you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. Okay, so what is it? But I already thought I had the Spirit in me, but now you're telling me to do something with the Spirit. So which is it? Is it in me and it's just happening? Is this abiding thing just like a guaranteed to happen? And, and we got to understand that all language is illustrative. And so let's understand something. If the Spirit of God, if we know Christ, the Spirit of God dwells in us, period. But that's not to say that we're always allowing the Spirit of God to lead our lives. This is why Paul would say in Romans Chapter 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your spiritual act of worship. What is he challenging us with? He's challenging us with that every single day, based off the mercies of God, to surrender your life over to him. My pastor said it this way, that Romans 8, and this idea that we believe in Jesus, guarantees that Christ presides and the Spirit of God presides in our life, that, excuse me, resides in our life. He's there. But to walk in the Spirit and to abide in Christ as what is referenced here in 15 and allow the Spirit of God to, to live through you means that he doesn't just take residence in your soul, but he's president over your life. It's a play on words, but I want you to see that. The Scripture says when we give our life to Jesus that the Spirit of God resides in our lives and hearts for all eternity. But when we, as Romans 12 says, lay our lives on the altar and we surrender to him and we do what Jesus is referring to in John 15, same thing, abide in him and walk with him, we're allowing the spirit that is residing to become president over our life every single day. That we are saying it is not our life, I'm not on my throne, but I'm surrendering fresh and anew to you today. Spirit of God, I, I want to walk with you and be connected with you. I want to be in your word. I want to pray and I want to allow you to produce in me the something I cannot produce in myself, which in our text is John 13, the love of God for one another. Church family, the challenge for us to love one another is not a legalistic challenge in the sense that I'm not a preacher that's up here just going, hey, do a better job being nice to one another. Love one another. Don't be mean to one another. 
Jesus says to love one another, that's how we're going to know his disciples. So just start loving one another. And you notice I'm intentionally pointing my finger as if that's often what is being said. But I want us to understand what John, I think, is challenging. Better yet, what Jesus is challenging us with. Hey, love one another in the same way that I've loved you, that I gave my life for you. But guess what? You can't do that unless first you believe in me, trust in me, follow me, and then allow the Spirit of God to transform your life. And as you walk with me on a daily basis as a believer, the Spirit of God, as you stay connected to me and abide in me, as you rest in me, he will then produce that love through you to the world around you. So actually, this is the opposite of legalism. I'm actually telling you to do nothing but stay connected to Jesus. And as you stay connected to Jesus, and as you walk with him, then he will produce a love in you that, is, that just can't be explained. I remember some of you have heard this story at times, and I'm going to be vague for the fact that it's just recorded, and it's a family story. You know, Families sometimes go and listen to me preach, and so I want to be careful. But there have been many moments where I've had run-ins with family members along the way, as we all have. And maybe this story will encourage you that my family is wonderful, but not perfect. And in those moments of run-ins, where at times I felt I've been really wronged at times. I can think of one particular instance where family didn't like decisions we had made about different things, and they really challenged us. Not only just said they disagreed, but they even said that what we were doing was sinful. And I wanted to go what degree in theology do you have to tell me that about Scripture? But, you know, I, I didn't, you know. Maybe if they're listening now, they'll hear it. But, but there's moments where, like, you're throwing the Bible at me, which, not to say you have to have a degree in theology to faithfully understand Scripture, but sometimes it helps. All right, past that point. The point was I really struggled with anger and bitterness for a long time. And I've tried really hard to go, I know Scripture's telling me to love them. And I, I just be honest, I, there was nothing but love. I mean, there was no love coming out of my heart for them. It was just frustration and misunderstanding and anger. And then over time, this is really where this text began to take hold of my life. And I realized as I was trying to love, it just wasn't there. And Jesus said, kind of in my heart, I remember one time just praying and I was doing my one year reading. And he just said, Jonathan, stop trying so hard to change your heart, but instead just spend time with me and I'll change your heart for you. And I use that as an example to say, I, I, I do challenge us as a church to love one another and to love in a sacrificial way and to love in a way that Christ has loved us. But I also wanna tell you, you can't do that unless you first know Jesus and believe in him and then walk with him every single day abide in him. Be a branch that is connected to its life source, the vine. And as you're a branch that's connected to the life source, the vine, then the spirit of God will produce a love in you for your coworker and for your family members and will give you love and joy and peace and patience for those around you. That he'll produce in you the things that you cannot produce for yourselves. And the challenge, John is saying, this is the most important ethical command. It's the only one I'm gonna give you. Therefore, let's make sure we get it right. And getting it right is recognizing that this is Jesus' love through us, not our love in above itself. So let us be a church that says, you know what? I, I want to love. And Jesus, I want to love the way you did. And, and First John would say that that's how the world will know that you're his disciples. That's how 
Jesus would say this in John. This is how the world will know that you are my disciples. So I do think this is something that we must get right. So what's the application today is not really actually go love better. The application today is go spend time with Jesus. And as you spend time with Jesus, he will transform you in a way. He will radically change your life and he will produce a love and a care for you and to others that honestly you can't produce on your own. And so my challenge to you is believe in Jesus, walk with him and abide in Jesus and allow us to be a church that loves the way Jesus loves. Let's pray. God, we come to you and we see and recognize this command to love one another. And the action steps that you give us in John 13, you tell us to love. And then the way you tell us to go about that is John 14 and 15, which is to believe in you and then to abide in you. So Jesus, we just take a moment and Father, I pray over this room. God, I pray that you would produce a faith in you, that you would help our hearts trust you and to know you and to walk with you. Father, I pray if there's someone in here who has not been forever changed by relationship with you and to know you and have never put their faith and trust in you and they've never received the grace of salvation in their lives. Father, I pray that you would open their eyes to that truth, that they would see you, believe in you, and know you for the first time in this room tonight. Father, would you waken hearts unto you tonight? And Father, I pray for those of us who would say we do believe in Jesus. Might we see that we need to then abide in you every single day. That you would help us build the disciplines and the love and the joy of just spending time with you. Then as we spend time with you, Spirit of God, as we surrender to you fresh and anew every single day, Spirit of God, would you then transform our hearts and live through our hearts, would you produce a love like no other, a joy and a peace that's indescribable, a patience and a forgiveness towards other that the world goes, what is that? And I say, it's, it's out of this world is what it is. It's something the Spirit of God is doing in us. So Jesus, would you Revive our hearts maybe fresh and anew to spend time with you. Not out of duty, but out of delight that we get to abide in you and spend time with you. Because apart from us spending time with you and apart from us abiding in you, we can do nothing for your glory and your kingdom. We can't love like this. We can't have patience and joy like this. But it comes through abiding in you and then allowing the life source to simply produce the fruit in us. So Jesus, I pray that we'd be a church that abides in you. Then I know that once we believe in you, know you, abide in you, and allow the Spirit of God to live through us, then that will guarantee a love that displays your love. And so I pray that that would be the result of this church, a church that believes in you, knows you, abides in you, and then goes and love one another and loves those around us in such a way that they see Jesus every single day. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. 
We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. You can email us at info at newhopeny.org. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for those outlets is New Hope NYC. Our website is www.newhopeny.org. If you are in the New York City area, we have 4 p.m. worship gatherings on Sundays at 164-2 Gothels Avenue in Jamaica, Queens. We're praying for you, and we hope to see you soon.